Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, if you can take out your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Once again, Jonah is a very small um, book uh, of the Old Testament, and it's in the, towards the um, end in the Minor Prophets. Um, so don't be embarrassed if you can't find it. Just look for it, and you'll get there. But if you can open up to Jonah chapter 2, we'll go through the text together. Let's pray as we come to this text. Lord, we give you great praise that you caused the Bible to be written. We thank you that through it, you speak to us. And we thank you that your words have power to transform life. And so, Lord, we cling to you. We depend on you to speak. And we pray that your spirit will fill us, give us listening ears and hearts, that we may understand it, and not just understand it, but that, 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 that the words may... Um, really be planted in our hearts and take deep roots and it may grow and bear fruit uh, for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. I think this is true. One of the greatest lies that Satan tells is this lie that we are in control. We are in control over our future, over our salvation, our career, our children, our relationships. Control over tomorrow. What's to come tomorrow? And so we work really hard um, to maintain this illusion of control, that we can create something, we can assure what's to come tomorrow if we work hard enough. And one, one of my recurring nightmares in my teenage years was uh, me falling from a cliff. And um, I think this was scary for many different reasons. I think I was just scared of death. I was scared of dying. But um, on, the, uh, on the other hand, I think there was another aspect in play. When, I, when you're falling, there's nothing you can do. You are completely out of control. You're completely at the mercy of gravity, and the end is inevitable. I think Jonah must have felt like that. He tried to run away from God. He tried to control his own destiny and live his own way, but then he falls. Look at the description of how, he, how far he falls in this text. He says in verse 1 that he calls from the realm of the, uh, of the dead, from Sheol. For, um, he call, he's thrown into the depth, he says in verse 3, at the, to the heart of the sea. The waters engulf him, he says in verse 5. The deep swallowed him. He was on the seafloor at the roots of the mountains. The earth beneath barred him forever, he says, in verses 5 to 7. Really, in his mind, that's as low as you can sink. He reached the bottom. He sank so low that he thought, actually, that God couldn't see him there, he says in verse 4. I said, I've been banished from your sight, away from God's sight, away from God's help, even beyond God's reach, he thinks. And it's ironic, I think, he prays this prayer because, you know, in Jonah 1, that's all he tried to do. He tried to run away from God's sight. But um, he tried to run away from him, but it's ironic because God had never left him. In fact, God had always been with him. He anticipated Jonah's every move. But when he gets to the point that he sought out, when he feels like he's escaped from God, he's in utter despair. He thinks he's lost, he's unsavable. Even God's gaze cannot penetrate to that depth, he thought. So he does what he didn't do in the entire first chapter. What's something that everybody else is doing in the first chapter, which is to pray. 
Everybody else prays in chapter 1. He does not, and he comes and prays in chapter 1 out of desperation. But obviously, you don't have to fall from a cliff or into the bottom of the ocean to um, feel that, that, that you've lost control over your life in, completely. We hear so many of these rock-bottom stories um, in the church. There are many, there are gambling addicts who say, you know, their life just went out of their control, um, spiraled out of control, drug addicts, alcoholics, workaholics. Um, I don't know if you've had the experience of lying. That small lie that just goes, spirals out of control, and you're just, uh, you're lost. You're falling. But some people at the bottom don't look like prototypical people at the bottom. Sam Polk uh, last week wrote this intriguing piece in New York Times uh, Review called For the Love of Money. He started his article by saying, in my, in my years on Wall Street, my, in my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million. And I was angry because that wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debt to pay, no philanthropic goals in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. He goes on to confess in that article how addicted he had been to money, how he craved for more and more. In his second year as a fund manager, his bonus was 1.5, and he thought how disappointed that was. He says he was out of control. His addiction of money had taken over him, and he hit rock bottom, although that his rock bottom looked different from a rock bottom of a drug addict. He knew it. He hit the rock bottom, which is why he wrote that article. But as you know, there is grace in hitting the rock bottom because it makes us realize that we're not in control, that we don't know what's to come tomorrow, that we need God in our life. And despite the fact that we are a people, we live in a culture that constantly reminds us that we should be in control, that we, be, uh, we, should, be, we should believe that we are in control, at the rock bottom, the literal saving grace of hitting the rock bottom is that lie, that illusion is lifted, that illusion of control is lifted, and we realize that we are dependent, we are finite creature in need of God. We realize that God is God, and we are not. So Jonah looked to the temple for the first time in this story, and he asks God to come and help him. He says in verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. We don't like being last options. Um, We don't like being picked last, but God doesn't seem to mind. In fact, God, I think, engineered this whole story that he's picked last He's finally picked. And what we find often is that when we have God, and when God is all we have, and when Christ is all we have, uh, Christ is all we needed all along. And I know, once again, there are people in this church um, struggling with all sorts of different things, people who feel that they're beyond God's help that because they're so terrible, because they're so sinful, people who are feeling helpless about what's to come tomorrow. Uh, people whose families are dying and feel helpless. People whose marriages are in trouble. You know, remember the Beatitudes. Jesus says, 
When you hit the rock bottom, blessed are you. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for you will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. God says he is enough. That at those times when you call on God and God comes into your life, he says, I am God. I am with you and who I am is enough for you. And when we realize that we're not ultimately in control, we're confronted with the happy truth that God is in control, that God is our salvation, that God is God and we are not. But it took Jonah to sink all the way to the bottom of the sea to remember that. It's not easy. It's not easy to remember that simple truth. So it takes um, conscious effort to remember and put that into practice in our lives. Because faith does not come automatically. Because our default mode is to go back and trying to be like God, to control our future tomorrow. That's our default mode, to earn our salvation by ourselves, to do something, to put things in control, uh, in our control. So, uh, because we're forgetful creatures. Jonah had forgotten who God was. Remember, I mean, remember he says uh, last last week in verse uh, chapter one nine, God of heavens, who made the sea and the land. He says he worships that God, but he tries to run away from God. He had forgotten that God is God. He had forgotten that God is merciful. I, I'm not. I think it's possible that he might have even forgotten that God existed in his life. But there is this turning around uh, in our chapter in chapter two in verse seven. And chapter seven, I mean, verse seven is pivotal. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. He remembers Yahweh. And from there, in verse seven, I think starts a chain of events that turns his life around. When he remembered, he also says he prayed. And my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple. In verse nine, he praises. And I with shouts of grateful praise. And that praise leads him to make a vow to sacrifice. I will sacrifice to you to give his life to, to, to God, to make a good on the vows um, that he, he, he's made in the past. He commits then to obey God, to go to Nineveh and declare that salvation is from Yahweh. So he remembers and then he prays. He praised he sacrificed, he makes vows, and he finally obeys. And it all started out with remembering that God is God, that salvation comes from God. Once again, but faith doesn't come automatically. It's like a muscle that needs to be exercised again and again. We know this about God in our life, but we have to remember this. We have to exercise. Uh, we have to ac- actively recall these things. And remember when um, uh, Jesus uh, was sleeping with the dis- uh, well, Jesus was sleeping um, when he was on this boat with his disciples, and the storms come, and the frightened disciples come to Jesus and says, "Master, Master, we're going to drown." Remember what Jesus says. Jesus says, "Where is your faith? Where is, where is your faith?" You know what he says. What he's saying there is that your faith is in you. You know what to do. You know who I am. Where is your faith? But it needs to be recalled. It needs to be put into practice. 
We need to recall who God is and put that into practice, especially in times of trouble. We must remember to look to the holy temple where God dwells. So when our family members are dying, we have to recall. We have to make the effort to recall that one day, that day will come when God will give us glorified bodies, that that pain and suffering will one day end. Despite the fact that marriage seems really difficult, we have to remember that God has put us together, that our ability to love the other person will only come when we cling to Jesus Christ. When the future seems uncertain, we have to recall, we have to recall um, that God is trustworthy. We have to recall Psalm 23 and say, Even though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear because he is with us. We must remember in our times of loneliness that we are married to Jesus Christ. First and foremost, that our deepest and most dire needs are met in him. This is why we come each Sunday. So you remember what you already know. Most of the things I say every Sunday is not new to you, but it's a reminder And I hope once you go out in whatever situation that you are in, that you will recall these things, that you will remember that God is God. Actually, it's not just in times of trouble we have to remember this. In fact, I think it's sometimes the hardest when things are going well to remember that God is God and you are not. That's why Jonah ran away from God. Jonah thought that he could run away from God. That it was only when he was in the pit, in the belly of the whale, in the, in, that, in, the, in, the, in the belly of the fish, in total darkness, when God removed everything in his life, he recalled, wow, God is God, I need to pray to him. Remembering and exercising our faith does not come naturally. That's why God has gathered us in this church, so we could remember what God who he is, who he is, and what he has done for us. To remind ourselves that God is trustworthy, that we need to remember our baptisms, that our death and resurrection with him, that our new way of living entails trusting in God fully and living radically following Jesus' steps. But once again, I think uh, the most astonishing thing about chapter 2 as was with chapter 1, isn't about Jonah's repent, isn't about Jonah at all. It's not his faith. It's not um, his remembering. Um, it's, uh, it's that the thing that I think is most amazing about chapter 2 is that God saves. That God saves. I hope you'll see what I mean. Um, because when we see chapter 2 and see his prayer, when we read his prayer, I hope you can see that there's something not quite right, something off, um, out of the order. Jonah remembers, but not fully. He prays, but I don't think he repents fully. I'm amazed still that God saves Jonah. So take a look at his prayer. I, I hope you noticed how self-absorbed Jonah's prayer still is. 
Look at all the eyes and look at all the things that he says. He says, in my distress, I called on the Lord. From the deep, uh, from the realm of the dead, I called on the Lord, called for help. He, he looked towards the temple. And he almost says, he, there's almost a sense in which he's bargaining with God in verse 9. He says, I will pray, I will sacrifice, I will keep my law, uh, vows. That's all in the future. And it's as if he thinks that because he did, did these things, God rescued him. I remember how chapter 1 ended. Chapter 1, verse 17. But Yahweh provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. God had planned to send this fish all along. God had planned to rescue him all along. God had planned this whole thing. It wasn't him. You might not be convinced that still that Jonah was self-absorbed and this was not a full repentance. But I think this is key here. In his prayer, there's no repentance. There's no sin mentioned here. He does not ever say, God, I am sorry for running away from you. In fact, he almost seems to blame God, doesn't he? In verse 3, he's, you hurled me into the depth, in the, heart, uh, in, the, in the very heart of the sea. And the currents swirled around, around me. And look at the possessive uh, that comes after this. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He says, you did this and all your waves are swirling all around me. Where is the repentance? Where is the saying, I'm sorry, but as a prophet of Yahweh Almighty, that I've run away from you. I've tried to run away from you. And then there is also a hint of self-righteousness in verse 8. He thinks he's better than the idol worshippers. He says in verse 8, Those who cling to the worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But really, that's a picture of Jonah, isn't it? He tried to run away from God, forfeiting God's grace towards him. And remember what the Gentile sailors did last week when God calmed the sea. They worshipped. They, they sacrificed. And they made vows. Chapter 1, verse 16. Which is exactly what Jonah says he will do at the belly of the fish. He says, I will make sacrifice. I will make, make good on the vows I, I made to you. I don't think Jonah understands his sin fully. And the amazing thing about chapter 2 is still God shows his mercy. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 103, 103, 8 to 10, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Praise God that that's the case. God sent the fish to Jonah at the bottom of the ocean floor and he made the fish vomit Jonah onto the dry land so that God could continue to draw Jonah to himself, so that God could continue to disciple Jonah as a prophet of Yahweh God, so that Jonah could learn more about himself and really truly repent and understand what it means to know the mercy of God. There's so much to learn from Jonah, 
and the way that God treats Jonah, I think, well, I mean, obviously one thing is that we, that we should never, we, we, we don't think of ourselves ever as finished product. Somewhere along the way, we're all like Jonah. There's more to learn. Let's continue in the path of our discipleship and be amazed at, at God's patience with us. But I think more importantly, I think this text shows us how unless we truly understand the depth of our sin, unless we really come to understand our shame, how sinful we are, how deserving of God's wrath we are, we won't understand the depth of God's love for us. There is this shallowness in Jonah's prayer because he doesn't understand his sins fully. And because he doesn't understand his sin fully, he doesn't understand God's grace fully. I think that one, the big advantage for us is we have something that Jonah did not have. We have something that, uh, we have one place where we cannot get away from understanding both the severity of our sin and the full extent of God's love for us. And of course, that's the cross. The cross is an illustration of our rebellion. It shows the punishment that each of us deserves for running away from God, for disobeying God, for forgetting God, for not honoring God, for living our lives our own way, knowing that it would break God's heart, for treating his creation badly, for treating other people badly, for treating ourselves badly. For all our past, present, and future sins, Christ came and died on the cross for us. He was cursed for us. He went to the depth to save us. It's that place where we cannot get away from our, our sin. When we see the cross, we, we see the depth of our sin. We don't need to go into the bottom of the ocean. We, all we need to do is look at the cross to go how low we could sink. But then, it's also a place where God shows his mercy. For it's not each of us that hangs on the cross, but it's the Son of God that hangs on the cross. He was whipped, he was insulted, he was crowned with a crown of thorns, and he was crucified. He took our place, and that's the amazing grace that we know. Jonah didn't understand how terrible he was. Jonah didn't understand how much he was loved. But we do. We do because of the cross. Salvation is from the Lord. And we have to remember this. We have to remember this as we go out. When things are good, when things are bad, we have to remember this. So, um, as we end, um, as we move to communion, why don't we stand and sing? Uh, it's time of offering, and I think it's an appropriate song that we're going to sing. We're going to sing once again, which puts, puts the focus rightly on the cross. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy, and I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. So let's uh, thank God, and let's praise God for what he has done for us. Please stand.